Key Aero, your aviation destination. Military Aviation. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Air Warrior podcast. I am your host, Caelan Chapman, and this week we continue our coverage of Afghanistan. Following the Taliban's swift return to power, we take a look at the fallout from the ongoing airlift operation in the country with a leading US-based author and academic, asking the question as to whether the scenes of chaos on the ground can be construed as another Saigon, harking back to the end of the Vietnam War. All of that is coming up a little later in the show, but first, here is your news. The news this week. Withdrawal efforts continue to gather pace in Afghanistan as NATO and coalition forces scramble their airlift assets to help evacuate civilian nationals, collaborators and military personnel from the country in light of the Taliban's recent takeover of the nation's capital, Kabul. During the early stages of the evacuation effort on August 15th, order broke down at the Hamid Karzai International Airport as thousands of civilians forced their way onto the tarmac in a bid to board one of the many transports and airliners flying people out of the country. Video showing hundreds of civilians encircling a taxiing US Air Force C-17A Globemaster III and unverifiable social media footage appearing to show some falling to their death as the aircraft took off have garnered criticism about the handling of the withdrawal efforts. Responding to the incident on August 16th, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby noted that a formal investigation could be launched. Since then, operations in and out of Afghanistan have increased, with US President Joe Biden setting August 31st as the deadline for the conclusion of the mass airlift effort, effectively creating another de facto deadline for the rest of NATO. In other news, tragedy struck in Russia on August 17th, when the first Ilyushin Il-112V light military transport prototype was destroyed in an accident which killed all three crew members. The aircraft had initially departed Zhukovsky Air Base, 22 miles southeast of central Moscow, at 10.35 hours local time, before landing at Kubinka Air Base, approximately 40 miles west of Moscow, at 11.09 hours. It then took off again at 11.14 hours for a routine test flight. Four minutes later, the crew radioed in that they had a serious fire in a number two, or starboard, engine. Amateur video footage of the final moment showed a large plume of flames coming from that engine as the fire rapidly took hold. Control was then lost before the Il-112V rolled inverted at low altitude and crashed into a forested area at 11.20 hours, less than a mile from the runway at Kubinka. And finally, it has been a week of air-to-air refueling firsts in the US. On August 16th, Boeing announced that the first KC-46A Pegasus for the Japan Air Self-Defense Force had successfully refueled another aircraft in flight for the first time. The test sortie occurred on July 20th over Washington state and involved two KC-46s. Japan will become the first international operator of the type later this year when the first of four aircraft is delivered to the nation's air force. Later in the week, on August 18th, Boeing revealed that its MQ-25A Stingray unmanned tanker had reached another milestone in its development under the US Navy's unmanned carrier aviation program. During a test sortie from the Mid-America airport in Illinois, the Stingray test asset known as T-1, successfully refueled a U.S. Navy-operated Northrop Grumman E-2D Advanced Hawkeye Airborne Early Warning and Control aircraft in flight. This follows the MQ-25A's historic air-to-air refueling of a Boeing F-A-18F Super Hornet, which took place on June 4th. And that was the news. It's now time to turn our attention again to Group Executive Editor Richard Thomas, who is joined by Dr. Tom Copeland, 
Professor of Politics at the Colorado Christian University for his take on the continuing airlift operations in Afghanistan and its consequences for US policy. 20 years ago, the Taliban were swept from power as a consequence for its role in aiding and abetting the 9-11 attacks, its hold over Afghanistan seemingly broken. The ensuing reconstruction efforts by the US and NATO amid a fierce Taliban-led insurgency brought the Afghan people new freedoms, the right to expression and education, regardless of gender. Fast forward to the present day, and it is a grim irony that the 20th anniversary of the attacks will see the Taliban once more ruling over the country, the Afghan people facing an uncertain future as Western militaries perform an unprecedented military airlift effort to evacuate diplomats, nationals and eligible Afghan civilians. Joining us on the Air Warrior podcast is Dr. Tom Copeland, Director of Research at the Centennial Institute, Professor of Politics at Colorado Christian University and author of Fool Me Twice, Intelligence Failures and Mass Casualty Terrorism to provide some thoughts on the airlift and the message this is sending around the world. Dr. Copeland, thanks for coming on. Well, it's my pleasure. So let's go straight into it. What does this message of the US and the UK's and other NATO powers emergency airlift operation send to the people of Afghanistan? Well, I think, unfortunately, it suggests that our level of commitment was, I guess, perhaps no higher than their own government's commitment to protecting them from the Taliban. You know, it's true that you know, NATO has had a, an overseas presence in many parts of the world. U.S. troops still have bases all over the world. We have had troops in places like South Korea for many years, as well as, you know, U.N. peacekeeping forces in the Golan Heights. And, you know, there are plenty of places in the world where we've had both peacemaking and peacekeeping forces. But I think it's clear that, you know, that the U.S. and by extension, NATO uh, just were not as committed to the Afghan mission. And, you know, there were questions from the from very early on, right, the initial invasion of Afghanistan to try to take out al-Qaeda. I uh, did have broad NATO support, but it was after about 2005 when you had the, the London and uh, Madrid bombings. Uh, you know, Spain and other countries began to kind of, NATO began to kind of pull their support. So it's been perhaps a, a tenuous commitment over the years anyway. Now, to be fair, you know, at one point the U.S. had something like 100,000 troops there. NATO had tens of thousands. So there were points in time when the commitment seemed really solid. But in the last number of years, so the support uh, at home has definitely dwindled. Okay, so taking that message forward then, I mean, what message does this withdrawal send to you know, rivals of NATO, China, Russia? Well, I think the implications are, are really clear. I mean, China already has, has issued as part of their statement about Afghanistan, uh, pointing out that the U.S. should basically not try to protect Taiwan. Uh, I think China is pretty clearly on track to try to take over Taiwan. The U.S. Navy has, uh, admirals have suggested that they'll try to take Taiwan within the next five years. This made us accelerate uh, their inches. We don't even have U- I know, U.S. troops on the ground in Taiwan, you know, as a, as a tripwire like we do in, in South Korea. Um, so I think China will certainly be emboldened. I think Russia has to think now, well, you know, the U.S. was, again, sort of tenuously committed to the Ukraine and not committed at all to the people in Crimea, what should stop them from, from going ahead and taking aggressive, more, more aggressive action? So I think to our biggest rivals, I think it certainly sends a message that, you know, we're not going to stick to those commitments. And I, I think more sadly for a lot of our smaller allies and countries that are in a position to need assistance, it's kind of caveat emptor. You know, be careful who you 
uh, become partners with because the U.S. may not really follow through on its commitments. Now, we were there for 20 years. You know, it's not that there was no level of commitment. It wasn't a quick in and out again. But to leave in the way that we're leaving, I don't know that I'd call it a withdrawal. I think it really is a full on retreat. Um, in many ways. And I think that sends a, a very bad signal. I, I think it's, it's going to take perhaps decades in the same way that Vietnam had long lasting repercussions for, for U.S. foreign policy and willingness to engage overseas and so on. I think it may be several decades before either the U.S. You know, and, and NATO get adventurous in the way that they have with Afghanistan, but also maybe take a long time before um, other countries are willing to uh, to trust, particularly the U.S. I think other nations probably recognize that you know NATO has had a major role in Afghanistan, but the the decision to go to war and much of what happened was was at the at the behest of the U.S. Yeah, well, I want to touch on sort of the potential comparisons with Vietnam a little bit later, but you you mentioned there obviously NATO. This is this is a, a body blow for the alliance, isn't it? This is its senior partner that every uh, every operation is structured around the capabilities that the U.S. military can provide logistically, headquarters, everything. I mean, one supposes the alliance will recover from this, but it's going to take a long time before it can and maybe even trusts a U.S. lead in another operation. Well, I think that's right. And, you know, there, there have been ups and downs in the, the U.S.-NATO relationship. You know, as far back as the 90s, there are these questions about NATO and so-called out-of-area deployments of force. So first of all, it was Southern Europe uh, and then questions of, well, what about Georgia and <laughs> Crimea and so on. And so, you know, the shift for NATO to go ahead and, and take action there in Afghanistan was not without some, you know, some debate, at least, if not controversy at the time. But, but I think you're right. I guess it raises questions about, once again, what the role of NATO is mm. in the world and does it have a role beyond the North Atlantic the follow-on question for that is, what will the European NATO partners do with their own collective defence and security? Because there are countries such as France have long called for the idea of having strategic autonomy from NATO, from the United States. I mean, this could push European Union forces further down that path to the creation of their own independent collective defence capability outside of NATO. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think there have been more movements in that direction in the last few years um, anyway. I think the interesting question will be for Britain post Brexit. You know, what does post NATO look like for for Britain? You know, they they don't want to be just the junior partner of the Americans, kind of all by themselves. I don't know that it's enough to bring uh, Britain sort of back into the EU. I don't think that's likely to happen. But I think it does raise questions for uh, for Britain and in, in where they're going to. Whether it's from military exercises to actual treaty obligations and so on, I think it puts them in a more difficult spot. Yeah. Okay. So I want to turn to uh, some comments that U.S. President Joe Biden has made in recent sort of months and and days. Um, he said prior to the chaotic scenes uh, that we've seen recently in Kabul, and he actually reiterated it in an August 16th speech. They had sort of no regrets about the decision to withdraw from the country. How's that been? received from within the United States? And is there any pressure being put on the administration for the decision to speed up this withdrawal into what looks like, as you described, as a retreat from Afghanistan? Well, I think there are a couple of different responses in the US. Um, certainly, conservative media and uh, Republicans in Congress and so on have been very vocal in, uh, in blasting Biden for the decision. Former President Trump was on Fox News last night and 
had predictably some strong criticisms of Biden for the, the, the pace of the, of the full-on retreat and so on. As I've talked to a lot of uh, friends, colleagues, and so on, there's a lot of anger. Folks feel like the sacrifice of our soldiers and contractors has perhaps gone to waste. They're you know, embarrassed. They're concerned about what message this sends to the Afghan people. Um, they are concerned about the Afghan people themselves and uh, what happens to particularly women and girls in that country now that the Taliban are back in charge. But I think it's going to take some time for it to kind of settle out in the same way that you know, people hadn't really expected the fall of Saigon, at least civilians hadn't expected anything like that to happen. It took a long time to process it. I think we'll still be thinking about it for a while. You know, the news is changing every day in what's happening on the ground. But uh, the fact that the White House is not guaranteeing that they will bring out the perhaps up to 15,000 U.S. citizens who are in Afghanistan, I, largely working for, for NGOs and so on, is I, I think will will continue to, to be in the news for a while. If those folks are, are left stranded inside the country, I could see it being a, a really big uh, political issue for Biden. I think if he can get you know, if the military can get everyone out, then that'll that'll you know assuage some of those concerns. But I think it's just too early to tell what the sort of the overall cultural reaction will be to it. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's sort of turn turn to the comparisons that are being made. So some of the images that we saw from the ground: desperate Afghans clinging to the sides of a U.S. Air Force C-17 transporter that was taking off. The, these images, I think, will form a bookend to the U.S. and NATO's efforts in Afghanistan over the past. 20 years, images that you know, many have said hark back to other iconic military conclusions, such as, as you mentioned, the fall of Saigon in the 1970s. Do you think it's a fair comparison that this is Saigon 2.0? I think it absolutely is. I think that you know, there are some easy comparisons between Afghanistan and Vietnam, you know, being involved in a country that perhaps, well, and trying to build a democracy in a country that perhaps does not really want it, or at least the corrupt government doesn't want it. The challenge of discerning friend from foe out, you know, where, where combat is happening, whether it's in the jungles or the villages or the desert and mountain towns of Afghanistan and so on. There are big differences. You know, of course, the, the Vietnamese had the support of China and Russia. And so it was a much bigger part of this, this major superpower rivalry. Mm. There was never that kind of you know, element in the, uh, the Afghan war. But I think it's, you know, because the images are just so powerful. And in some ways, because Biden himself, when asked even two or three months ago, if this was going to happen, insisted, no, you're never going to see images like this. Kind of the, you know, if the president says that he means it, I assure you this isn't going to happen. But for those who remember or who have seen Ken Burns' documentary on Vietnam, uh, they recognize those images of, of uh, U.S. embassy staffers being airlifted off the embassy. And then, yeah, it was it was a, a made-for-TV moment when there are helicopters at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. And in some ways, the the other image that that immediately sprang to mind for me with the C-17 and people falling to their death was a reminder of 9-11 itself and the mm -hmm. images of people who had jumped from the World Trade Center building while they were burning. And so, yeah, speaking of a bookend, you know, to me, at least, that's a bookend image of people you know, fleeing the World Trade Center at the cost of their own life and people trying to flee the return of the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda and the folks who caused that to happen 20 years ago. Yeah, indeed, eerily sort of similar comparisons to be made there. Um, just finally, what legacy 
will the US and NATO leave now in its withdrawal retreat from Afghanistan? Where does it go next? Where does the West go next? Well, I think there are several things. I think the the legacy within Afghanistan is certainly mixed. There are still Afghans who are thankful that the Americans were there. Um, I've heard interviews this week on the radio with you know young women in Afghanistan who are in college who were born after the U.S. invasion. They've never known a world where the Taliban were in charge, and they're very worried for their future. It remains to be seen if the Taliban has really changed their you know if the leopard has changed its spots at all. Mm. They're making placating kinds of noises right now about the role of women in society and so on. But I hope, at least, that the legacy of, if not democracy, at least basic human rights, equality for women and so on, that those seeds have been have been planted somehow. The legacy for the U.S. and NATO, and we've, we've talked about the question of what is NATO's role in the world? It doesn't really want to get involved in Ukraine. It didn't do anything really about Crimea. So in what has typically been NATO's front yard Mm. (laughs) right there in Europe, there are still questions about whether NATO is relevant or capable or interested in uh, engaging in those kinds of of, uh, conflicts and so on. The legacy for the U.S., I think, is going to be a, like I said earlier, a long-term challenge. There's a great book I would recommend by Walter Russell Mead called Special Providence. And in it, he outlines several different schools of thought in the U.S. The typical explanation of America is, well, we're either interventionists or isolationists. And he says there there are far more things going on than that. There's our Hamiltonian impulse for free trade and open doors for trade and so on. There's a Jeffersonian impulse to kind of make sure that we're doing things right at home before we try to export democracy. And foreign wars are just expensive and messy. And that's the Jeffersonians. And of course, there are the Wilsonians, those who, like the neoconservatives, you know, want to plant democracy and make the world safe for democracy. You might have to break some eggs to make the omelet. Mm. Um, so you might have to invade a place like Afghanistan to to bring democracy there. But Mead points out, I think, um, and it very clearly, that the other biggest school of thought in America are the Jacksonians, those who would rather tend to their knitting at home, go about their ordinary middle class uh, jobs, and so on. But if we're provoked, then yes, you go to war and fight hard. And I think that was clearly the American response after 9-11. But once the Jacksonians decide they've had enough, they also want to come home. And they're skeptical when elites suggest that we need to be involved in foreign wars elsewhere. So I think that Jacksonian impulse is going to be with us for quite a while uh, at this point, that uh, it's going to take you know either a direct provocation like another 9-11 or perhaps a direct provocation like China actually invading Taiwan for the American people, at least, to get behind not only the deployment of military force, but then also settling in to stay and try to build a nation. And with that, we'll have to leave it there. Dr. Tom Copeland, Director of Research at the Centennial Institute and Professor of Politics at Colorado Christian University. Thanks very much again for coming on to the show. Thank you. For our listeners, if you would like to know more about the topics discussed today, as well as the rest of the news from the Air Domain, please visit the Key Aero and Air International websites. But for now, and until next week, thanks for tuning in. This has been a podcast from Key Aero, your aviation destination. Remember, visit www.key.aero for more of the same. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to catch up with you again soon.